The opinions expressed in these materials represent the personal views of the participants and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum and other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. Reference to any third party, specific product, process, or service by trade name, trademark, or otherwise does not constitute or imply endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by salient. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Epsilon Theory podcast. Today, Ben and I are joined by Brad McMillan, Chief Investment Officer at Commonwealth Financial Network. Brad has been a real estate developer, consultant, lender, and as an investment analyst, manager, consultant, and startup executive. Uh, he has he lots. He can't keep a job, can he? That's the problem. Uh, yeah, it's a checkered I, I, career. Right. <laughs> uh, he has lots of letters after his last name, including CFA and Kaya. You can find him regularly in the media on Twitter at Brad McMillan CFA, and you can read his thoughts on the Commonwealth's blog, theindependentmarketobserver.com. He's invited Ben and me to his office in Waltham, Waltham, Waltham. Come on, man. Waltham, Massachusetts, for a conversation today. So, Ben, Brad, nice to see you guys. Thanks, thanks for having us. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for and th- thanks, uh, th- thanks for having us, Brad. I, you know, I was telling Brad earlier. I haven't been out to Waltham in twenty years. When my my first year in grad school, you know, I was living in one of those triple-decker rentals in uh, Somerville, you know, Slummerville, you used to call it, right? <laughs> but uh, a buddy of mine was, uh, was out here at, at Brandeis, and he had a uh, semi-regular poker game. So I, I managed to find my way out here uh, more, more, more than a few times, or more times than I care to admit. You were right across the street from Brandeis University uh, at Commonwealth's headquarters. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, well Brad, I'm, I'm really glad you invited us up here. You know, what I'm trying to do with, with Epsilon Theory is open up the sandbox a bit for new voices, both in our, our written materials, but, but also for the podcasts. So it was a great opportunity uh, uh, for, for, for us to come back up to uh, Massachusetts world. And uh, even though Michael's got to get his pronunciations a little bit better here, I was, I was just saying that I remember coming up here and trying to to get directions out to, to, to Worcester, you know. <laughs> anyway, that's Worcester. 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 Which is terrible with my southern accent. Trying to do this stuff with a southern accent is uh, is Hey, you is got really it good. down. You're doing well. I'm You're a man. Well. I'm a man without a country. A man without a country. <laughs> uh, but uh, really, uh, to to have this opportunity to uh, to to have Brad as 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 our guest on on this podcast. So what we're the the game plan for for this conversation is we want to talk about first a topic that's near and dear to, to, to Epsilon Theory, Hearts Everywhere, which is the role of narratives in, in markets. So Brad, you've got a, a wonderful perch uh, here at, at, at Commonwealth to, to, to see markets and the, the, the way that stories flow through and about both the, uh, the, with the investment advisors, with the, 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 the clients, the, the, the end, uh, in, end investors really get a sense of, of how that's worked over the years. And where I want to take this conversation ultimately is talk about the role of, of a narrative and stories in our business, the business of financial advice. 
uh, because this is a strand that I really want to try to develop uh, as we started this on the last podcast, talking about the, the, the changing role of expertise uh, in, in our society, right? Whether we're talking about expertise in the terms of financial advice, medical advice, legal advice, political advice, it's all changing, and I, and I don't think for the better. Uh, but let's start with that conversation about, about narratives and markets. So, so, Brad, you start off. Tell us, give us a sense of kind of the perch you have here, right, in terms of, of what you see and, and how you've been involved in this and where you see the role of narrative and markets, any similarities of the past and what you see going on. Well, I, first of all, I totally agree that um, narrative drives far more of what's going on than is commonly perceived. And I actually first ran into the concept many years ago. There's an author named Terry Pratchett sure. who writes comic fantasy. Oh, yeah. Love Terry. Yeah. I, I first ran into the notion of narrative causality. In other words, in human, the human psyche is such that if a story happens a certain way enough times, it becomes impossible for it to end any other way. And, you know, this is obviously in his universe, but I looked at that and I kept looking at it and it really spoke to me because at the time, narrative causality, doing what I do, what you do, really has a lot of overlap because to a lot extent, large extent, perception determines reality in the markets, at least for a good long time. Yeah. That's, that's, can, I, can I just tell two Terry Pratchett stories? Because I'm so glad you actually brought this guy up. So Love my, Terry Pratchett. One of my favorite authors as well, right? So you're right about this notion of narrative causality, or I think he's right, and I'm glad you brought this up. But what also strikes me is that there are only a finite number of stories. Great point. Right? There are a lot of them. It's a big number, but there's only a finite number of stories. And, and that, I think, is, is really um, impactful when you start to think about you know, what I'll call non-human intelligences, what people call artificial intelligences, where it's now possible to read, measure those finite numbers and to, to, to hold all those stories in, in one you know, non-human brain, so to speak. So I'm getting way off the topic with that, right? But, but here's my famous, uh, my favorite Terry Pratchett quote where he's trying to talk about the, or describe the differences between uh, American society and European society. And he said, uh, in his mind, the, the, the biggest differences can be explained by simple observation that a European uh, listens to something you say and he says, wow, I, I really don't understand what you're saying. What's wrong with me? Whereas the American says, I really don't understand what you're saying. What's wrong with you? And, and I just thought that was such a great uh, uh, dichotomy, and, 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 I, and I think very true. So uh, a, a man of much wisdom, I think, Mr. Pratchett. Absolutely, and I was very sorry to see him pass away. Yeah. You know, and just to tie that quote, which I love, into the narrative, there's a fundamentally different narrative between American capitalism and European capitalism, which is reflected in that quotation. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. not just in the capitalism, but in the society that raises it. And I think you've seen that certainly come out in the financial crisis. The U.S. actually was much more biased to take action with the assumption that the problem was not with us, but with the system. So let's yep. change the system. Europe took much longer to get there. I would also argue Japan is in that same place. So that's a great way to look at a meta-narrative determining actual macroeconomic policy. 
fantastic, Brad. I, I, I think that's so right. And in my sense, is still that the epicenter of whatever crisis will come or, or systemic shock for markets. My sense is the epicenter is the, the, the European banking system. To your point, because I don't think it was ever, I won't say that our system was fixed, but it was never addressed you know, to the same degree with the same sense of urgency that, that, that our system, those, those issues were addressed. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And I would also argue if you look at Japan, I think you have two models here. Mm -hmm. You have the American narrative where, okay, it's broken, it's not our fault, it's a system, we're going to fix it. And you have the Japanese narrative where we as a society have done this, and therefore we're not going to change it that much because if we do, it implies that we as society are somehow flawed. And they can get through that because they have this huge social cohesion. So they're willing to live with the consequences of that. Now, in Europe, you have the collision of these two narratives where you don't have a unified, a unified polity that will allow them to live through the consequences, but you also don't have the determination to make those changes. And that's where the crack-up's going to come. So uh, I agree with you. Well, that's, that's a great point. So I, I've often thought about the, the homogeneity of, of Japanese political culture as actually being a source of great strength for them, where they can stay the course in in this path that, that, that you're describing. And, and I think a big part of the notion of the concept of European identity was trying to create a similar um, uh, touchstone, a, a similar foundation for a common uh, notion of identity. And we're seeing how that's just uh, falling apart between our, uh, you know, before, before our eyes. To go briefly off topic, just for a second. We can't go off topic. Not, We're not, all good. Yeah. Not that we ever yeah. do that. I just finished a wonderful book called Post-War. It's a history of, obviously, post-war Europe. And I can't remember the author, and it's quite long. But it's probably <laughs> the best introduction for an American, at least for this American, that I've read to really give a sense of how Europe came to where it is today culturally and socially. And one of the things that I found most interesting was it was much more a history of ideas, of narratives, as it will, mm -hmm. than I thought it was going to be. But by the end of the book, you could see how that history of ideas wrapped intimately into where we are right now and where we're going. And it's something you don't normally get in a work of history. So I recommend that book highly. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm definitely going to check that out. Uh, I, I think this this plays in pretty nicely with you know something we were talking about before we started the, the the podcast, and that was not to date our podcast or anything, but we've got the the, the first round of the the French elections um, this be this weekend, right? The Sunday, I think they're they're, they're going to have the, the first round. That's right, the twenty third. And it you know it obviously we have the the. The, the polarization that exists in in France on, along the the, the traditional uh, political spectrum of left right doesn't seem to matter very much. You know, something I've been talking about for a while. You you also saw that in the American context, right, where the the traditional left right Democratic Republican spectrum, but has both. Um, Call it. I'll use the the, the ten the ten dollar phrase a bimodal distribution, right? Where you don't have a single peak in the middle, where you have a majority of people essentially in the middle, but instead you've got two distinct majorities, but they're either to the left or to the right. 
But I don't even think that that does it justice, right? Because that, that left-right spectrum doesn't mean as much in terms of being code for your party affiliation or who you're going to vote for. And I, and I don't think you have to look farther than the, the, the success that Bernie had on the Democratic side and the success, obviously, that, that the Donald had on, on, on the Republican side, neither one of whom I think fits neatly on a, on a, on a left-right spectrum uh, or a traditional left-right spectrum, at least as is expressed in the United States. But I think you're seeing the same thing in Europe, right, where you're seeing this, this surge with uh, Mélenchon and, uh, uh, from the far, the far left, but speaking to an anti-status quo movement that Le Pen from the far right similarly speaks to. So it's this, it's this dimension of status quo versus anti-status quo, to give it kind of a name, right, that seems to be the, the, the dominant um, uh, political issue, both in France, I'd say also you saw this in Brexit, you saw it in the, the, the Italian referendum, but certainly in the, 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 the U.S. vote. And, and I think it's when the, when the models shift like this, I think that, that, that yields uh, a lot of difficult nights for people, in the political sense it's mostly uh, both academics and media who are involved with, you know, how do I shape or create or report the story around politics because the old stories don't work as well anymore. But it's also true for markets, right, that our old stories, whether it's talking about, uh, you know, what the, the Fed can do, should or shouldn't do, the role of fundamentals in, in stock prices and the like, those old stories don't work as well anymore. And so it's, 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 I think part of our goal is to figure out, well, what are the new stories uh, that, that are at least being adopted without losing the fact that there's a lot of truth in these old stories that, 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 that tends to get lost sometimes. That was a rambling uh, introduction on this. But I'd love, Brad, for, from, for, again, from your perch, and we'll talk a bit more about Commonwealth and what a, what a substantial perch you do have here, right? But to, to give us a sense of how you've seen, whether it's in politics, whether it's in markets, kind of the, I won't call it the death of the old stories, but the, 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 the transition from these, these old stories to new stories in, 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 in markets. What, what have you seen? Does this remind you of any times in the past? Where, where, would, you, where would you kind of uh, assess this right now? Well, I think if you look at stories, where do stories come from? Stories come from society, from a vision of how people interact with each other, of how people view the world. And as such, I mean, the dominant story in any given time is going to change. You know, what you're talking about politics is essentially a story that's changing from we care about policy because this determines who we are to it's not so much about policy. It's about where we are in the economy. It's almost a class issue, which we've mm -hmm. never really had in the U.S. And that's a very different story. So to look at where the story is coming from gives us some, gives us some clues as to where the story needs to be changed. And per your point, as investors, what is necessarily going to happen to that story? Now, for example, the U.S. story, because let's focus on U.S. markets because that's what I know best. The U.S. story is based on growth. It's based on continued improvement in the living standards of most people. It's based on this kind of progressive narrative. Mm -hmm. Everybody does better. I'll, I'll add also mobility, 
both both class mobility, labor mobility, that's a big part of the, the American story also, I think. Exactly right. There's a story that where you're born does not determine yep. where you end up. And that's been an eroding story. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the story because stories come from the underlying reality. So we now have to look at this and say, okay, what does it mean as investors if the story is changing, if people's expectations are changing from continued growth, continued improvement? I think there are several takeaways from that, but let me just highlight a couple. The first would be if the expectation of continued growth is starting to erode, so ultimately will expectations for growth and the willingness to pay for growth. So I think over time, that's going to have an effect on interest rates, as we've already seen potentially. You know, if we expect lower growth going forward as a society, rates have to go up less. Well, well Brad, let's, let's stop on that for a second because that pertains directly to our business of thinking about markets. There's absolutely been a premium placed on secular growth now for the last easily five, six years, probably, you know, seven or eight years, right? So what we've seen is that uh, uh, companies, sectors that embody secular growth, not cyclical, but secular growth, technology being the, the, the prime example of that, but not the only one, they've commanded and driven excess returns versus, I'll call it traditional value. But right. why is that? That's because we're not getting growth from anywhere else. That's Obviously, right. people right. are going to have to go to where the growth is. Exactly. When there's a when with if 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 growth is rare, a premium is going to be paid for that growth, which is why those sectors and stocks have done better. But you know, we saw a, a, we've seen it now about three times in the past five years where you've seen a a sharp reversal in that. It's a but it's proved to be temporary. And what I mean by reversal is a reversal in the story, the story that we are now off to the races again with, with, with real growth in the United States. And when that happens, when that story shifts back to the old story, as you're, I think, absolutely accurately portraying it, well, what happens then is that value stocks, they do well relative to growth stocks. Because if growth is now uh, you know, less rare, a more ubiquitous thing, well, then I want to buy stuff that has that's been beaten down, right, yeah. the, 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 the value. The, we've seen this, though, this narrative change quite recently. We saw it change immediately after the election in November. Right? So when people talk about the Trump trade, what they're talking about, I think, and you see this reflected in interest rates, you see it reflected in you know, the equity markets, you see it reflected in risk assets, period, is this notion that, oh, we're back to the, the old story of robust secular growth in the United States. We'll, you know, we'll take care of that through tax cuts, through regulatory reform, uh, you know, through infrastructure build, right? So we'll get, we'll get, that won't be, that would be, uh, I don't know if you get real growth from that, but you, but you get from that last, right? But you get growth. And so, and so we saw a, a, about a month and a half where value outpaced tech growth, those stocks significantly. Interest rates spiked, right? But now it seems that we're going back to the, uh, we're now resuming our regularly scheduled entertainment, right? Where where that, that that Trump trade seems to be coming off. But when people talk about the Trump trade, I think a better way to express it is just as you're describing. It's that the story, and it seems temporarily, but let's talk about whether it's temporary, reverted back to the old American story and the way that gets reflected in our in our capital markets. 
I would certainly agree with that, and I think that's kind of the longer-term stories that are playing out. You know, we do have solid economics reasons for believing that growth has slowed and will continue to be slow, demographics, slower productivity growth. But at the same time, it will take the story a while to adjust to that. Yep. And people are going to continue to sell the higher growth Well, people story. want to believe. Absolutely. I that's, want to believe. That's, that's what, a sto- that's what yeah. the best stories do. Not only do they give you what you want to believe, they also give you a path towards actually getting to where you want to go. And that, unfortunately, is what's missing at the moment. But I think the other thing that's at play here, at least in my mind, you asked about narratives I'm seeing. We're starting to see more and more investors looking to take more risk. Mm -hmm. Not a majority yet, but you can see the trend clearly going in this direction. We're saying, we have investors saying, well, the S&P is doing this. Why aren't I doing better? So, and particularly given this spike in confidence, the reversion to the old story, There's a sense that, okay, we've had 10 tough years, although actually the past several years have been pretty good. Yeah. We're still digging out of a hole, but it's pretty good. And they're going to say, okay, it's different this time. And if you were to ask me what one story I would say right now is starting to gain traction, it would be it's different this time. I look back to 1999. I've been giving talks recently saying now looks like a lot like 1999, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I've got a lot of you know things to show that. But at the same time, that's the most powerful example of narrative causality, potentially, that I can see right now. That can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it has been over the past five years as far as the market goes. Yeah, it, these the, the stories do build on themselves. Uh, you're, you're exactly right, and and I, you know, there's so many strands to to, to, to pull out of what, what what you just said. One of them being that you're you're right that the last few years have been good years, right? But Tremendous it, years in an aggregate sense, right? They're, they're still, and this gets to your point about wrestling with issues of class and income and wealth distribution in the United States, which the United States has never done a good job of wrestling with. You know, well never done a good job of recognizing, much less wrestling with that, right? But it, it does it does feel like to a lot of people, and I think this was reflected in the election, that the that the the goodies of this bubble, right, of, of financial asset inflation were, you know, not evenly distributed. That's exactly right. If you look at the average person, they've actually fallen behind. That's right. So if, if they're hearing me say things are good. Yeah, this has been a great couple of years. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're saying you're crazy. You have no grip on reality. Well, the problem is if you look at the macro reality, it's one thing. And by the way, I don't dismiss you know, that a lot of people are having a very tough time. I absolutely respect that. But from a but. macro perspective, things are still looking pretty good. So the challenge we face and the narrative we face is how to get the benefits at the top end down to the folks who are having a tough time. So that, and that I think is the reality that's driving the change in story. But as people do start to feel better, as people do start to see the benefits, that could also be drive the change in narrative to it's different this time. You know, you're seeing a lot of discussion now about the difference between what, I call, what it's called soft data and hard data, yeah. right? Where when you look at hard data, it's, it seems to be a, and you see this reflected, I think, mostly in, in credit markets, right? So, so my kind of basic notion is that when the credit market sees things differently from the, the equity market, 
it, it, it tends to be because the, the, the credit world looks at hard data, right? whereas the, the, the equity world tends to look at, at, at soft data. And there, there, there really has been, when you look at, so, by soft data I mean things like uh, consumer confidence, small business confidence, these, these sort of measures, the, the conversations that you know, your clients are having with your advisors, right, about, you just said, you know, wanting to put money to work and start to participate, to feel that hope of the, the, the old story coming back because it is so motivating. But that's very different from the, the, the hard data we're seeing in terms of, you know, GDP growth rates and, and all these issues that you're describing about a, if not permanent, at least a long-lived uh, decline in, in secular growth patterns. Consumer spending and consumer confidence, you know, terrific, terrific. Uh, discrepancy right yeah. there. Yeah, You know, and historically, as you know, um, that when you have a con that kind of conflict between the soft data and the hard data, it does tend to break down to the hard data. Sure does. Which is not encouraging. No. So that's something that um, rising, rising confidence, both business and consumer, is typically associated with higher stock market valuations. Yep. And the question really, we're in a race between will reality catch up with the story or will we have to change the story once again? Well, let's talk about what, because this is, described this at the, at the opening, I, I'm fascinated by this issue about how we in our business of financial advice wrestle with this, right? Because on the, on the one hand, and you just said it, right? So on the one hand, the, the soft data numbers that are, that are very positive suggest that the path forward in equity markets is a, is a good path, right? But on the other hand, we're wrestling with what we know, which is that <laughs> over time, that, that, that hard data almost always wins out. And, and I think when you look at what's going on in our political polarization, whether it's in Europe, as we described, or whether what we're still seeing in the United States, or you know, we can, we can talk about Asia as well in this regard, gosh, what, what, what's a financial advisor to do? Right? Because you, you, you have to understand, you have to listen, not just listen, you have to hear what your, your, your clients are saying to you and how they're feeling. And on the other hand, you've got some, some notion of, of unease, I suspect, given, given what the, the hard data is showing. So let's, let's start turning the conversation to this notion of financial advice, right? Which, which I, you know, my view is it's as uh, important for our social, societal well-being as medical advice, as legal advice. It doesn't get the same sort of uh, um, uh, encomium. It doesn't get the same sort of praise, right, that, that, that those other fields do. But I think it's just as important, maybe more important in a lot of respects. How do you wrestle with this, with, with what you describe and, 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 again, from your perch, and you can describe kind of what that perch is like in the, the financial advisors you've got um, you know, within the Commonwealth? Sure. We have about 1,800 independent financial advisors who are affiliated with Commonwealth Financial Network. And of that sentence, the most important word is independent. Independent, yeah. You know, because one of the things that I believe we offer more so than, you know, any other firm out there is the ability to, indeed, the requirement to act in the client's best interests. You know, we're seeing this in the DOL fiduciary mm -hmm. rules right now. You know, what really, whose who's best interests are advisors required to act in? 
you have an, if, if you have an independent advisor, the advisor works for you as the investor rather than for somebody else. You know, there's a much clearer line of loyalty. So from that perspective, I personally am much more comfortable working at an independent firm. You know, we don't have, for example, proprietary products or anything. Again, no conflicts, and that's the key. So that's where we're coming from as a firm. And what I'm seeing here is many advisors are, it's a cyclical thing. Mm -hmm. Back in the early 2010s, advisors were saying, no, you have to be more heavily invested in equities. You know, I know it's scary. But you need to do this, and it's going against the story you think you're thinking in your head, which is that everything is going to heck in a handbasket. And now advisors are having exactly the same problem because the story is exactly yeah. now turning up. But isn't this 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 is part of the problem with with the business we're in, right? So that the the um, the, the the wise financial advisor, I think it's almost always talking down or talking against the, the, the natural impulses of greed and fear of, 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 of their clients. And, it, it, and it, 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 it sets up pretty poorly, right? Because if, if you make a misstep or just, you know, fortune, you know, goes, it, it, the world zigs when you were saying zag, right? They, they take their business somewhere else because there's always someone who's going to tell them what they want to hear. And it's the hardest thing, I think. It's the hardest thing in our business. I, I read an interesting study once. It was a psychological experiment on college students, and they gave them a set of tasks to do and a set of rules. And if you actually read the rules, you would um, do a certain things and maximize your payout. And the only people that actually read the rules and did it in a way to maximize the payout, because it was designed to be emotionally hard to do that, mm -hmm. were the physics majors, the analysts. And most people, as you well know, are emotionally hardwired to do exactly the wrong thing at exactly the wrong time. So investing in general is hard to, to take it to the... Yeah, yeah. And, and let me just say what you just described, it, you know, the, the, the conceit also in our business is that, oh, it's those, you know, doctors and lawyers, those clients as investors, they're the ones that are swayed by their emotions and the like. You know, not true. Let me, let me, let me assure you that the, you know, big institutional investors who are man a big pension fund, they are just as prone to, to, to these sort of emotional sways. I've, I've often thought that the most successful, in my experience, hedge fund managers are, and I'll use this phrase clinically, are, are, are high-functioning sociopaths because they're, they're, they're able to compartmentalize and to, to check their emotions at the door. Uh, and, and so, it, so it's, what you're describing is, is, a, is a human experience at, at, at every aspect of investing. And it's hard to get around. It is absolutely hard to get around. So the way I see, you know, in some extent, I'm an advisor myself. I mm -hmm. help advise the advisors. So what I, how I see my job is helping them tell stories to their clients that makes sense of what has happened and help guide them to what is most likely to benefit them over the next three to five years. In other words, stories aren't just kind of descriptions of what's going on. Stories are how we understand and how we decide to act going forward. In many respects, I'm the storyteller in chief yep, here, yep. where I can say to people, this is what you need to do and this is why, and here's a story about how it makes sense. That uh, wrapping, wrapping plans and stories helps you really make sense of the world 
in a way that facts simply for 99% of the population don't. You know, I was thinking as you were describing that about the, the, the role of storytelling and what an important skill it is, whatever your job or role is, if you're dealing with, with other people. If you're, if you're not a physics, uh, you, know, you know. Which almost no one is. Which almost no one is, right? If you, if you, if you really are dealing with, with physics and, and the mathematical formula, all right, you probably don't need to be able to tell a story around that. But I remember talking to a group of, of analysts at one of my old funds where you know, the, the role of being an analyst often appeals to the, the, the introverted, right? So, okay, just, just put me in front of my computer and the, you know, the, I, can, I can do my research and I can figure this out. I can solve this puzzle. And, and, and what I was trying to describe to them was to, to sell your idea to your portfolio manager, you've got to be able to tell the story, right? The most successful analyst can tell the story about that stock or that sector, whatever it is that the puzzle they've described. And so I, I think it's so important, whatever your, your role is in this business and other businesses, can you tell the story? And that, that, I think that's such an important aspect of success. I think you're exactly right. Figuring out the story is a critical component. Delivering the story to actually get action and buy-in is actually the harder piece of the two. But you got to know the story up front, and you got to have it figured out, and it's got to be the right story. And of course, that's the challenge we face every day as investors. I think one thing I've started to see in, in, in our business, and uh, you see this reflected in what we'll call robo-advisors, right? But it's the story around technology, that, that technology can be this um, unbiased, more effective advisor Right for, for for you know an, an, an investor, I, I think that one thing is important to describe is that you know as part of what you're describing, Brad, the 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 requirement now though, and the the Department of Labor, that's what you, the the DOL rule, this Department of Labor rule uh, that came out from the Obama administration, really requiring financial advisors to be fiduciaries, and the and the implications that that has for fees and, and how uh, uh, advice is, is presented to a client, which I agree with you. It's, it's, that, that's the way it should be. I, I totally believe that. I think that what's happened, though, it, both as, a, um, uh, as, as firms who perhaps didn't operate on that model were looking, well, how do we transition to that fiduciary model? What it, what it means is that a lot of their clients became unprofitable for them, right? There's no question. I mean, there's a lot of unintended consequences right. here. And by the way, I think the intention behind the DOL rule was beyond criticism. Correct. I think the implementation of the rule Absolutely. could be a lot and, better. And, and this is the point I was trying to make, because, because as these clients became unprofitable, if you move to a fiduciary rule, what does the... What does that firm do? They basically fire the client and say, oh, you should use this robo-advisor. Use the computer, right? We'll use automation to, again, try to keep the client, but do it at a margin where we can still uh, keep them, right? It's, it is these unintended consequences and the uses of technology not necessarily to provide a greater good, 
but the use of technology to improve the profit margins for firms that have to, have to deal with these regulatory changes. I don't disagree with you, but let's take a more charitable interpretation <laughs> of that. I mean, I could take exactly the same set of facts and yep. say, okay, these people still need my help as an advisor. I need to be able to help them. This is a way to use technology to make it more efficient so that I can continue to help them at a price they can afford to pay. Because I think the real question here, the real robo-question is, does a human advisor add value? And I think from my perspective, the, the answer is unquestionably yes, because it's not about the math, as you just said. Right. It's about your ability to make the right decisions. And that's where advisors can add value. They should use robos. They should use robos as guides. But you also have to have a person in the loop. I think that, that what, what's important about technology, and I think that's the, the promise of this new generation of technology, it, it really does provide a good tool for humans to ask better questions of markets and information. And, and I think that's the promise, and we'll see how much of the reality that actually achieves. I think that's very well expressed. Um, I like that a lot, actually. I'm probably going to steal that. At Good. Some point. Steal away. <laughs> but I think the interesting thing to me about technology is, and bang with what you were saying, it's a tool. I mean, a lot of the stuff that's coming out today, I mean, one of the talks I'm giving right now for mm -hmm. a lot of reasons is this is 1999 2.0. But looking at that, I look at the robos, I look at the technology, I look at some of the young people who are coming to me with startup ideas that they want to, you know, bounce off me and see what I think of it. And I say to them, I think of the E-Trade baby. Yeah. I think of the Motley Fool back in 1999. Yeah. For yeah. people who are old right. enough to remember this, there was a sense that this is easy. This is easy. That if I have the information, you know, it's really not that hard. And that's true as long as things are going up. There's a lot fewer day traders in 2005 than there were in 2000. And I suspect that's exactly what we're going to see. From a market's perspective, it's been a great several years. But at some point, unless it keeps going up, and who knows, I could be wrong, it could, at some point the game's going to get a lot harder. Well, this, you've made this distinction, I've, 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 I've read you make this distinction between information and knowledge. Right, so, so, so information is pervasive and cheap today, but knowledge, expertise, isn't. And, and, I, and I think that the, the, the hope, at least the hope I have, and I know hope isn't a strategy, but I'll, I'll say it anyway, right, is that the, the, the promise of, of AI, right, of this technology, is that it can provide a, a, a knowledge tool for humans, for, for experts, for financial advisors, to make better and still profitable you know, business activities with their clients so that we don't lose them, so they're not foisted off into a two-class system, but so it still makes sense both for our business to, you know, as I said in The Godfather, you know, after all, we are not communists, right, to still make a profit while doing good by providing the expertise. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's really, at the end of the day, about the service to the customer. Are we really helping people? Within that context, the tools are almost irrelevant. And what I find interesting is a lot of the narrative around technology and finance goes on two different axes. One is helping the average investor 
That's typically an allocation and remodeling yep. package. That's what people mean when they refer to as robo-advisors. And there you have a gap between the human's ability to stay the course and the robo's ability to just keep doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Setting aside for the moment all of the assumptions that are baked into the robos, which inevitably come from people, so I'm not sure that really counts as artificial intelligence. A better example of what you're talking about are some of the automated trading systems, the high-frequency trading systems that are battling it out. And that, I think, actually points to some of the limitations of non-human intelligence, simply because it becomes an arms race exactly the same as it was for people. But instead of people, you've got robots fighting. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's so right. And to me, it's the difference between uh, big data, right, uh, which, which is a, a, a race to, if not a bottom, to some asymptotically, you know, minute differences, right, that with greater and greater expense to try to achieve, versus what, you know, my colleague calls, you know, big compute, right, which is this notion that let's, let's, let's try to use the computing power as a tool to make better decisions, right, principally for what you just described, the allocation issues, right, because this is something that we've been writing about in Epsilon Theory for a while, particularly my, my colleague Rusty Gwynn, about what matters and what doesn't matter. It's what matters much less is picking this stock versus that stock. What matters much less is, oh, even, you know, this sector versus that sector. What matters much more is how much risk works for you in your allocation across all these different asset classes and investment opportunities that one has. Now, I think it's that advice that whether it comes in a human shell or a, or a, or a, a, a machine shell, that's the most important advice that we can give to our clients. Totally agree with that because that ultimately is what determines success or failure yep. over time for the client. And certainly if you look at some of the interesting work that's being done, the there was a Go championship recently yeah, yeah, yeah. where the computer program won 10 years ahead of what Schedule, had been expected. Right, right. But what was most interesting about that tournament to me was there were a couple of occasions when the computer did something, took a strategy, made a move, that everyone, every human expert watching said, oh my God, where did that come from? That's a terrible move. What a blunder. Yeah, how could, that, how could the programmers have let that happen? But it turned out to be a game-winning move. And that's the kind of non-human thinking that you're talking about, yep. which can really add value. I think you're right. Well, listen, this has been a great conversation, Brad. I mean, we started off with some, some sense of, of despair, but I, but, I, but I think we found, I, I hope, some hope. And uh, it's, it's a conversation I'd like to keep going. As always, we've got difficult times. We've got real issues. But we're going to be okay. Yeah. We're going to be better than okay. Yeah. We're going to do great. I hear it. Thanks, guys. Brad, it's great meeting you. Look forward to talking to you guys again. Thank you. See you guys next time.